Welcome to NAB Digital Next. I'm Brad Carr and we're recording today at NAB's Melbourne offices on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. We've gone pretty heavy on digital identity in our last couple of episodes. Our guest today brings expertise that spans identity as well as payments, the future of money, Web3, Metaverse and much more. So I think it's best at talking about identity within that wider context. David Birch is an international thought leader across these topics, a regular Forbes contributor, author of several books, including Identity is the New Money and The Currency Cold War. He has way too many board seats and consultancies for me to keep up with, but I will call out that he's on the UK government's payments advisory board. David, welcome and thanks for joining us on NAB Digital Next. It's a pleasure, Brad. Thanks for having me. David, you've had a month or so here in Australia. We're delighted to host you here for our digital identity design sprint. You and I did a couple of roundtables together in Sydney. Payeds, John Ryan's had you out on a fintech cruise in Newcastle yeah, Harbour. that was great. What are some of the top observations from your time in Australia? I think from an external perspective, Australia is actually really interesting in several different ways at the moment. So first of all, on the payment side of things, you have MPP in place, you know, the richer data infrastructure, which isn't fully exploited yet, but uh, you know, people are looking to build new things on that. That's interesting. You have the sort of trust framework around digital identity, which, and you probably know the UK has decided to go down this route as well now, um, rather belatedly in my opinion, but they've eventually decided to, to do the right thing. I mean, our framework is a little sparse at the moment, so I'm curious to see how that evolves. You have an actual bank initiative that's no longer PowerPoint, which is Connect ID, which um, I think NAB is launching yes. in the next week or two. September, yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting from that point of view. But, and I'm not sure if I'll annoy people by saying this, but it's also interesting because you are literally the global center for data breaches. And because of what went on with Optus and, and Medibank and all this sort of thing, basically everyone in Australia has had their identity stolen. So how you recover from that and the extent to which that stimulates development of a better infrastructure for all the stakeholders is really interesting. You've got, you know, we, we were first with sort of mandated open banking, but you've gone down a different and more interesting path with consumer data, right? Which I think is where we should be heading. And it's interesting to see the first steps in that direction and where those are going. You have the ACCC saying that they're going to look at um, holding tech companies and mobile operators uh, to account for the explosion in what we call APP fraud, authorised push payment fraud. Whereas we are still ridiculously struggling with this, what we call the contingent reimbursement model, which basically imposes all of the costs on banks. So there are so many ways that right now, Australia is, is really interesting to people like me. So all the meetings I've been to, all the sessions I went to, I've learned a ton. You know, your, your design sprint, the digital identity design sprint, that was terrific. I mean, there were one or two things there which I, you know, like the checking the credentials of employees and stuff like that, which mm. I thought were, were just great. So, no, it's been fantastic. And um, I had the opportunity to stay on for an extra few days to go to Intersect, the fintech festival. And so, you know, that gave me the opportunity to come back to Melbourne for a couple of days. And, yeah, it's all worked out great. Yeah, well, delighted to hear it. And, and as you say, we have been somewhat the epicentre of a lot of the, the global fraud activity. Yeah. And I think that's probably helped to really galvanise attitudes and initiatives within our economy here. Certainly the way that I think we're staring at it from a NAB perspective is that we have our consumer customers who 
in the wake of those events are increasingly aware that they don't want to be necessarily sharing all of their identity documents widely in the way that they have historically. But equally, we've got our business customers who increasingly are aware of the data liability that they have sitting with it where they have over-collected data and whether they've stored or protected it sufficiently. It seems it would be so much better if the consumers weren't having to pass that, that data to the businesses in the first place and that others like us can hopefully step forward and provide an alternative. Well, I mean, you and I have talked before about the, the need to kind of get personal information out of transactions where, where it doesn't belong. The way I like to kind of phrase it is it's drawing the distinction between what we have now, which is digitized identity. We've taken our offline analog identities and we've basically made PDS out of gas bills. And one of the crucial characteristics, I think, of real digital identity is this issue of selective disclosure. So the idea that, and I'll, you know, I use the same canonical example that everybody else uses, there is a world of difference between me proving to Telstra that I'm over 18 and me giving my date of birth to Telstra. There is a world of difference between me walking up to the door here today and the door knowing I'm allowed in and the door knowing who I am. There's a world of difference between using a driving license to show that you're entitled to drive a motor vehicle and using a driving license to open a savings account, which my wife was refused, by the way, because her driving license had expired. Quite what the ability to save has got to do with the ability to drive, I don't know. But, but you see what I'm driving at, mm. is we use personal data in transactions as a kind of proxy to get to the things that we actually need for the transactions. And digital identity allows us to skip that. It allows us to produce the proofs, the credentials that are needed to enable a transaction without supplying pointless personal data that will inevitably get hacked and spewed all over the internet. And at the same time, we need the, the businesses or agencies to come on that journey and to perhaps break out of their historic paradigm where they've just collected whatever data they can, um, that they need to recognise that they don't necessarily need to over-collect and, and whether that's a legal requirement or an impression of future liability or just because they've always done it. We need them it to come is, on the journey, don't we? I am slightly sympathetic to them, though, because, I mean, because they're responding to the kind of legal and regulatory Yes. Incentives they're being set. So if I if I want to, I mean, I'll pick a silly example. So I I run a I run a bar or something, and in three months' time, somebody comes and says, "Well, you let this guy in, but you know you didn't check where he's over eighteen. I, said, I did check I was over eighteen. You know, here's a copy of his passport that we photocopied and put under there. I mean, that's kind of where we are now. Yes. You know, yeah. so Optus they were responding to what they thought were you know legal constraints. Mm. You've got to keep this information on file and that sort of thing. But, again, just to stretch that same example, a zero-knowledge proof that I'm over 18, you know, contains evidence that you requested and obtained the proof. So you can store that proof. You're now not storing any of my personally identifiable information. Yes. But if six months' time the police turn up and say, did you have this guy in on this night? Did you check he was over 18? You've got the proof that you did check he was over 18. Yes. Without any personal information. So I know the thing is, if you're in Canberra and you think of ID as basically cards in a filing cabinet somewhere, that all sounds a bit like witchcraft. You know, like this idea you can tell things about people in an auditable fashion without giving away any of the data. That sounds crazy. But actually, if you're in the world of cryptocurrencies and Web3 and digital assets and tokens, this is it's nothing. Yeah. I mean, it's, these are standard techniques. Yeah. So... 
I think we should be very optimistic about the ability to bring these kind of things together. And also remember, mm. we're, we're now in a situation where you know, this really shouldn't be the driver, but we're now in a situation that through COVID and, and afterwards, fraud is so completely out of control that something has to be done. Mm. And that's why I was joking on LinkedIn about that, you know, literally with the ATO having responded to a freedom of information request showing that they lost 550 million of your dollars to to this tax refund fraud, which is based on the personal data that's been stolen. And now the news that they've lost three billion, three and a half billion in that what they call the TikTok fraud. Yes. People setting up these bogus businesses to get the the R and D um, tax credit refunded. Honestly, if I sit in another meeting and someone says about a business case for digital identity, I'll scream. You know, authorised push payment fraud in the UK is completely out of control. Fraud is the number one crime. I saw a thing from Barclays, and the number might be wrong, but I think it's correct. Barclays said that 87% of their fraud comes from one place, which is meta. These frauds come from Instagram, mm. WhatsApp, Facebook. So almost all of their fraud comes from one place, which is meta. And fraud is the biggest category of crime in the UK. So on current figures, one company, Meta, is the source of about a sixth of all recorded crime in the UK. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's an unsustainable mm. situation, mm. especially when we have the tools, and have had the tools for some time, to actually do something about it. So when you put all those things together, Brad, I mean, yeah. you know, if you'd have asked me a year ago, I'd have been really depressed. I'm like, I can't believe it. You know, they've stuffed all this stuff up. You know, we haven't made any progress at all on digital identity, fraud's out of control, no prospect. But I think, I mean, maybe I've got rose-tinted glasses, I don't know. I think things look a little more optimistic this year, I mean, don't you? I certainly think the incidents you mentioned have really galvanised momentum, and I, I think you're right that the business case speaks for itself. I think we do have the challenge still in terms of the adoption and the acceptance throughout the wider economy, but I'm, I'm heartened by your optimism that, that that's turning. Well, and it that, that, seems like things are getting done, you know. You know, I think we've we've talked also a little about how you know, we can skate to where the puck is or we can skate to where it's going, to use the, the Canadian's favourite yeah, parlance. Yeah, yeah. And we've talked a bit about the notion of Bank ID, and we had Avon, the, the CEO of Norway's Bank ID, on Nav Digital Next not long ago. You know, Bank ID perhaps being a best-in-class of where we're at today, but we also need to look ahead to the future, and their technology needs to be refreshed looking ahead. I'm wondering if identity wallets are perhaps the, the next big paradigm perhaps that we need to be looking into. From, from Australia, we're watching from afar what the European Union is doing with EIDAS2 and, and how that plays mm -hmm. out. You know, I'm, I'm curious on your view as to whether this is, is what's going to herald the next big iteration in identity and perhaps what we should be looking for. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, we think the extent to which Australia is, you know, essentially a Scandinavian country in a way in that you have a very concentrated banking system and you've got Ozpost and you know very concentrated on the mobile phone side so the idea that some sort of bank id should be in place it, it makes a lot of sense when you look at the structures and the dynamics and the demographics but as i'm sure bank id told you themselves they're going through a technology mm. refresh because that that's now an old technology it's it's um, been up, up, up and running for 20 years been yeah. incredibly successful yeah but, you know, it's not quite what we want going forward into the sort of new, always-on online world because you need 
I mean, first of all, you need multiple identities actually in this world. I, I noticed yesterday there was a proposal by China Mobile to have a like a kind of metaverse passport, you know, a single identity for, and I, that doesn't seem right to me. I think when you go into the online, when you go into the metaverse, you are different people in different circumstances, and so we want that. But we also want the issue of we also want the selective disclosure, the protection of personal information. Um, we probably also want something that's very integrated for the overall trust framework. And what I mean by that is that I really ought to be able to use my Aussie bank idea, whatever that turns out to be. I should be able to take that to Qantas and use it to get an account at Qantas. And I should be able to use my Qantas ID to open a loyalty account at the hotel and things like these things should all work together yeah rather than the kind of siloed thing we have at the moment so so bank idea i think is fantastic to learn from it's a fantastic case study but as i'm sure they probably told you themselves it, it's being refreshed and we should be looking to the next generation well, i think that the two great success factors i see out of their their environment was firstly that they managed to actually convalesce all of the banks together and actually mm -hmm. have that collaboration yeah. and that collaboration with government and then I think to the point you were just alluding to, that they managed to ensure it was a, a ticket you could get to everywhere, that you were able to then get to your government services, you're able to use it for different private sector use cases. And I think that's a really crucial factor, that we need a user to be able to get to everywhere as opposed to, oh, I need to enter a separate system to be able to get my tax records or my university records or to get on a plane. I think people are going to want to have that interoperability as much as possible. And I think that may be that may be a slight weakness with the with the EIDAS, you know, as it stands at the moment, because it, it is primarily public sector focused. But the, see, the thing is, would you want to use your government digital identity in all circumstances? And that's not mm. clear to me. I might want to use my government digital identity to get my bank digital identity, or to get my travel identity, or to get my footy club identity. But then in transactions, I'm going to use those identities, not yes. my government identity. Yes. And so it's a bit more complicated than, you know, can I just get my identity and use it everywhere? You know, there are kind of other considerations that come into that. But whether you've got a wallet solution that enables you to choose which identity or which credentials you apply. Well, I've become very I've become very obsessed by by wallets as the the sort of central organizing principle of all of this. Because I can sort of see that it's actually true of wallets now. So if you opened up my wallet, you wouldn't find any money in it. Yes. Um, yep. What you'd find is identity of one form, actually reputation of one form or another. And what's actually in my wallet is driving license and loyalty cards and you know this kind of thing. No actual money. Credit and debit cards. You know, mm. they're all identity things. They're not. They're not money. In terms of making something practical that works for all of the population, you know, the idea that you have identity is a bit like you have cards in your wallet. You know, you. You go and log into something, you take out the identity that you want to use for that. And 99% of the time, it will be your sort of, what I think of as like the John Doe identity that reveals nothing about you. Because most of the time when you're online, it's nobody's business who you are. It's just that you're able to demonstrate you meet a particular criterion, which might be that my date of birth is at least 18 years ago. Indeed. Mm. And actually, as, as kind of you alluded to earlier on, one of the other key criterion that you might need to meet is that you're a person. Mm. I mean, the internet is collapsing at the moment under the weight of bots and you can't trust anything. So, you know, and look at what's happened with Twitter with where Elon Musk got annoyed with Twitter and he bought it to get rid of all the bots. And it's suffused with bots. Yes. If I do a chat thing with the bank, 
I mean, I don't care if I'm chatting to a robot or a person, but I mean, other people might feel strongly about that. So being able to, and actually you don't know whether you're talking to me or my bot, then you might feel quite strongly about that. So this ability to somehow tell whether you're dealing with a person or not becomes really important. And the way we deal with it at the moment is I come and log onto a website. They want to know I'm a person. So I have to click which of these are motorcycles. You know, and I'm looking at it. Is that a motorcycle or is that a moped? I don't know if that's really a motorcycle. You know, wait, is that a motor? Is that a motorbike or is it a motor scooter? Is that an electric bike or a motorbike? Well, now we've got to the point where bots can do those more effectively than we can. In fact, I yes. want I yeah. want a plug-in for my for my Safari so I can get a bot to do those things for me. So <laughs> there was a very good joke on Twitter the other day, but to understand why it was a funny joke, you have to remember I'm old. And so I remember Isaac Asimov and his laws of robotics, which were very famous in a previous era, Brad. Um, and Asimov, this is, he wrote iRobot, which they turned into that film with, mm-hmm. with Will Smith and Foundation, which is on Apple TV at the moment. And when I was, I don't know, probably when I was like 17, 18, I was reading science fiction all the time. I loved Asimov. I absolutely devoured the Asimov books. And he had this thing about um, the laws of robotics, right? How a robot can't harm a human being. Um, or by inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. Someone said, you know, that that should be the that should be the capture test on <laughs> to prove that you're a person. You have to harm a human being or allow another human <laughs> being to come to harm. Uh, well, you know, who knows? I've seen stupider proposals come out of Parliament. You know, so it might yet be that way. But yeah, you're right. Um, you know, the ability to just demonstrate those basic things is crucial to actually growing the online data economy. I think the, the point about the rise of the bots was one of the really striking things I took from your, your roundtable last week. And you made that point that, you know, is a real person will become the the most crucial piece to validate more so than, than is over 18. I kind or, of think or, it will, yeah. yeah. But you also, you know, cast us a bit into the future with the view of it won't be about customers and merchants and banks and regulators. It'll be about customer bots and merchant bots and bank bots and regulator bots. It's a fairly confronting thing for a banker to have to think about in terms of, you know, how we're going to handle the authentication in that. You know, how do we know that this is really Dave Birch's bot that's coming to us and wanting to be able to actually access and transact on Dave Birch's account? But that's really the paradigm that we're going to be staring into, yeah. you know, maybe not today, but pretty quickly in the second or third horizon. That's going to be a big piece that, that we're going to need to prepare for, isn't it? I mean, I'm reluctant to sort of say it in these hallowed halls, um, and I don't want to offend anybody who's you know, walking past out there, but banking is quite boring. You know, for most people, and I include myself in that, if a super intelligent giant killer robot came and did it for us, I, for one, would willingly hand over. I can show you an email on my phone right now. Because, you know, I'm in Australia. I get an email from my bank saying, you know, you've gone overdrawn and we're going to charge you, I think it's 35%, or I don't know what it is, a million percent, I don't know what it is. On this, and you're going to have to pay X pounds a day for being overdrawn, or sort of thing. And so, I'm going to have to go and log in later on, and move some money from a savings account, and work out because I haven't been paying attention. Oh God, I've got a, wait a minute, I've got the credit card bill to pay. I've got this bill to pay. So I've got to move enough money from that savings account to cover the. Oh, but wait, I didn't take into account. Of course, my salary hasn't gone in yet. That's why, because not the end of the month yet. I'm bored even just telling you about it. <laughs> like, and I'm just thinking, this iPhone, I'm constantly being told, 
this iPhone has a billion times as much computing power as put Apollo on. You know, yes, yeah. It's like, why can't you just do it? Mm. Like, why can't you just do it? Like, why are you telling me about these things? Can you just do them? And you know what I mean? Mm. And actually, there's a whole category of financial transactions which, far from being boring, are just too complicated for people to understand. You know, should I move money into this pension scheme now or should I wait until after the end of the tax year? Should I move money out of this account to that account? It, it will, mm. Wait, should I leave money... Should I leave money in that money market account or should I move it into an equities thing? Like, I don't even know. And I'm, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I haven't got a clue about any of those things. The sooner a giant killer robot does it for me, the better. Yeah, you can see yeah. the demand for that trusted advisor function in the board, right. can't you? Yeah. Right. So therefore, you get into a situation where the bank is trying to sell things to my bot. My bot is interacting with various banks to work out what to buy. And none of those decisions will be made on the basis of your brand, mm. you know, or whether you sponsor the cricket or, you know, what your ads on TV are like or, you know, whether you have that cool ad at the bus shelter. None of that will matter because my bot will be making decisions on, I don't know what, but it'll be making decisions on how good your API, how responsive is it, what kind of service levels do I get from it, mm. how many times has it been down in the past five mm. years. Price. Um, mm. Price, of course. I mean, that mm. goes without saying, but, you know, I just think... Maybe we're not geared up yet to work out how the bank responds to that. How does it project itself into that space? And then when you go a step further and you think, actually, the bots and the, the bank bot and the consumer bot, we are to handle much more complex instruments than we have now. I mean, at now we're restricted to things that people can understand. Yes. You know, if people actually do really understand how mortgages work and so on. But I don't think that would be true in a bot-to-bot -bot world. So then all of a sudden you need bot regulators because, you know, if you're going to look for misbehaviour mm. in these complex instruments being traded hyper-quickly, people can't do that. You know, it's a ridiculous thing about filing suspicious transaction reports. and all that. None of that can work in that environment. So, But I'm not saying that to be, like, oh, scary and whatever. I mean, I think that's going to be great. I, don't, I, I actually don't want to deal with my bank on this sort of thing, you know. I'd rather just give the bot some sort of basic parameters and tell it to get on with it. Yeah, I mean, it leaps out to me in terms of the authentication challenges, but that's where I think there's going to be a lot of need for whatever the next iteration of RegTech looks like in helping to solve some of these challenges. It's a, it's a fascinating world to start thinking about, and it is to use futurist methodology that we have the, the first, second, and third horizons. This is the third horizon that we're just seeing the starting signs of it now, but it is going to be the transformational change, I agree. I mean, I've heard people say, and I think I sort of agree with them, like if... Like, really, the fintech era is over. You know, it's that's gone. We're in another era now. We're in the sort of open banking, embedded finance era. Mm. And what's coming next after that? Well, it looks like it's probably going to be something around tokenization, digital assets, Web3. But when you get into that third horizon, which is really all about AI, AI becomes the event horizon. Yeah. I think it's quite hard for people, I include myself in this, it's quite hard to imagine actually where that's going to go. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big and such a disruptive change. It's fascinating to think about it, but no, you know, how much we actually know, I'm sceptical. I'm with you. In the, the Futurist course I did recently at the University of Houston, we looked a lot at what's AI's impact going to be on knowledge workers, and I came back with my head spinning around lots of different scenarios, but certainly no answers. But, I mean, insofar as I understand, like, proper futurism, as, like there's mm. proper futurism and then there's me down the pub, you know. 
I think you're more at the kind of proper futurism end of the spectrum. Well, I don't know. The one thing I've learned in the futurist community is that they argue furiously as to what it actually is a futurist. So, <laughs> Yes, that's a good point. But I mean, I assume you were building up certain kinds of models to look at the impact of you know demographics and climate change and, and all this kind of thing. And it just seems to me that and maybe we, we understand the others a little bit better, but it seems to me AI is so dominant in those models. It's mm. really very hard to think past that. Yeah, I think it's an industrial revolution, unlike any of those that have preceded. Oh, I think you're right. David, lastly, you've given a lot of terrific reading, viewing and listening recommendations. I've been queuing up quite a lot of people around the bank, actually, that they need to be following you and reading your Forbes and Substack as their cues to Thank where you. they should be looking and learning. It's very kind. And the other recommendations you've given have been brilliant, albeit there's one blemish. You got a question last week about enfeeblement, and this notion that humanity will become stupider and stupider over time <laughs> as we rely more on tech. And you cited the movie Idiocracy. And I hated that, and I... Unfortunately, you couldn't actually rent it on Amazon Prime, so I had to make a fifteen dollar donation to Mr. Bezos to actually oh buy my it. God. To buy I, it, I didn't mean for you to spend real money. That's that's fifteen dollars that I won't get back, and an hour and a half of my family's time that we won't get back because the movie was terrible. But putting that to one side and trusting the other ninety nine percent of your track record, what other are there any other great recommendations you share? One thing is, if you actually saw an American president or presidential candidate come on stage shooting a machine gun in the air. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't even bat an eye. You wouldn't think it was odd at all. No, I didn't think it was far fetched. And and <laughs> and the idea that you choose the president on the basis of who wins the World Wrestling Foundation, I think you know, I, I'm I'm waiting for a better solution. Well, that, Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura, not that long ago, probably fit the fit of that mold that as well. That might be where they got the idea from. Yeah. Look, I always get so if people say, you know, what's a good movie to kind of learn about the financial system and financial services. You know, people tend to think about sort of Wall Street and, uh, you know. Big Short, yeah. Big Short is absolutely fantastic movie. But I always say the same thing. I always say Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. (laughs) Yes, yes. It's a fantastic movie. And in terms of helping people to understand the financialization of the economy, if you remember, those are the core of the movies about orange juice futures. Frozen concentrated orange juice. Frozen concentrated orange juice futures. But the other movie I really, really like is Margin Call. And that didn't get the attention of some of the other movies that came, like The Big Short, that came out at the same time. But Margin Call is is about the one night in a big US bank that's going under and what happens all night. And Jeremy Irons is fantastic as oh, like, yes, the chairman yes, of the I did bank. See that. Yeah. No, I just I love that uh, movie. Yeah, but if you want me to just pick one, it's, it's honestly it's Trading Places. Yeah. Yeah. I also remember Idiocracy. You know, I thought it was like a fun movie. It's actually a scary horror movie. It's a it's a documentary. It is uh, one. And not suitable for work, by the way, we it, should mention. It is one contra- confronting vision of uh, the future of humanity. Yeah. David, thank you. You've given us a lot of great insights, and I think also probably reinforced a bit of the, the call to action that as we look at the opportunities with our digital identity ecosystem, that we have the imperative given the fraud ep- epidemic that we are now unfortunately engulfed in. But that there is, I think you've, you've painted the optimistic future of the opportunities we have with that. And uh, and I think it's a call that we all need to, to take on and heed. It's one that we've been very keen at NAB that we can't solve this ourselves, but we need to step forward and help to galvanise others with us. Also really struck with your view of the future there around the, the rise of the bots. And I think it is one that we're going to need to give a, a lot deeper thought to as to quite how we prepare and how we can optimise yeah. both as firms, as an industry, but also as individuals and as a society in that environment. So thank you. It's been great to see you again. Great to hear your wisdom. And thank you for joining us on NAB Digital Next. It's great to talk to you, Brad. Thank you so much.
And next up on Nav Digital Next, we're going to talk quantum computing with Michael Brett. Michael's an Australian expert doing exciting things on this topic at Amazon at their Seattle HQ. So we look forward to that one. Thanks again for joining us.